0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. From darkness to light, this is the story we all share as the people of God. He draws us out to draw us in. From the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. Well, good morning and happy new year. It's good to see you. Uh, There is some awesome glitter all over this table. I imagine I will be wearing it by the next service. So I feel like I'm right at home. Um, In the book of Genesis... God calls a man by the name of Abram, changes his name to Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham and tells him, um, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to make your descendants as vast as the stars in the heavens, and I'm going to take you to a land that I have promised you where you will never be in need again. And God makes that covenant with Abraham. We see it passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob. Then you get into the middle of Genesis and Jacob. Jacob shoots for the moon. Jacob doesn't have one or two sons, Jacob has 12. And so you kind of, on one hand, think well, the covenant is safe and secure. There's 12 of these guys. And um, But then the one that begins to surface that you think, okay, this is the favorite. If it's going to pass on through anyone, it's going to be through Joseph. And Joseph's brothers begin to not like him so much. In fact, they hate him to the point that they decide to sell him. And they sell Joseph off into slavery and Joseph winds up a slave in Egypt. And through all of that, we know the end of the story, but at all points, the covenant seems to constantly be at risk, in jeopardy. Like, how, did, how is God planning on fulfilling this thing if all these things keep happening to his people that the covenant's supposed to go through? Well, again, we're, we're on the other side of it, and so we know. But in, in the book of Genesis, at the very, very end... Um, is one of probably, it's definitely one of the most important statements made in the story of Joseph, but quite possibly it's one of the most important verses in the entire book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, Joseph is nearing death and he reiterates something to his brothers that he had said to them earlier when they had been reunited. He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me by what you did, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God not only permitted or allowed, God intended and ordained it for good. He ordained it and intended it for Joseph's good for his people's good, and for his own glory. Joseph, through his own suffering, and this is very important, Joseph, through his own suffering, saw the sovereignty and the goodness of God in ways that he may have never seen without walking where he had walked. On his deathbed, Joseph says to his brothers in verse 24, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to our father Jacob. And then Joseph made his brothers swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Very important to recognize, even as we read all the way through Genesis, through the story of Joseph... Understanding and acknowledging that Joseph never would have chosen those circumstances for himself. Never. You and I would not have chosen that either. Let's see, stay at home with my dad and my brothers or be sold as a slave into Egypt. I'm going to stay home. You know, don't even need to pray about it. Joseph would not have chosen these circumstances for himself. But as we arrive at the end of the book of Genesis, we already we're one book into God's word and we already begin to understand that the road and the path to God's best it's always going to require a test. Always. It's always going to test us. Genesis stops and Exodus picks right up where Genesis ends. This morning, we are going to dive in to the book of Exodus and we're going to walk through this together this year. So, if you will join me in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, watch how this just picks right up where we leave off. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So Joseph and all of his brothers who they all came to Egypt, they have all died Um, generation passes, but we see that in Egypt, the Israelites continue growing, multiplying, increasing. Things are going really, really well. God led them there in order to save them. We learn this. We see this in Genesis. God kept them there in order to refine them and prepare them. God has got a plan and it's, it's moving and it's working. He brought them there. He brought them out of that land to save them. They would have starved to death. But why on earth did God not just take them back? Well, he's keeping them there to refine them and prepare them to send them out where he is preparing them to go. Several generations, things are great. But decades later, as one generation passes away and the next things begin to change. And what begins to happen is that refining that God is working. It's about to heat up. Look with me in verse eight. We're going to read through chapter one, and then we're going to come back and walk through this together. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly, and that word there in the Hebrew can be translated very, very easily violently. They ruthlessly and violently made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shiprah, and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, when you're there helping them deliver their children, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she can live. But the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. As time passed and the Hebrew boys continued to increase, Pharaoh starts putting two and two together. Why have you done this? The midwives said, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. As soon as we get there, they've already given birth. What are we going to do? Pharaoh's a bit stupid. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But then Pharaoh commanded, all his people. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Every son that's born to the Hebrews, you will cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Go back with me to verse 8. Very significant verse. Joseph, all his brothers, they come to Egypt. Things are great they pass away. Their kids grow up. Things are still great. But eventually, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Friends, everywhere, in every circumstance, in every relationship, everywhere that God builds bridges, Satan is going to work to burn them down. You ought to be aware of that in your life. Everywhere that God is moving and working to build reconciliation, um, to build transformation, Satan's gonna do whatever he can to burn that down. Once a few generations are removed from Joseph, once a generation is moved from the Pharaoh that Joseph was under, those bridges are falling apart and are all but burned up and decimated. Politics, real politics power hungry, ugly, dirty politics, if there is another kind. Politics, I think that we're all aware that almost always it's about who you know. Politics are about who you know. It's about who owes me a favor. It's about who do I have in my back pocket for a decision that I need to get pushed through. Well, if politics are all about who you know, I think it's significant to understand that this new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. Who's Joseph? Why should I care about Joseph? He didn't know Joseph. He didn't care about Joseph's descend- descendants. Moreover, he did not know, he did not serve, he did not love Jehovah God. I don't know Joseph, I don't know his people, and I don't care about his God. And so he begins to be worried that these Israelites in his country, they're about to outnumber the Egyptians. Something needs to be done. And I want you to notice the first thing that Pharaoh does, because this is where if you have any doubt that he's a politician, you can erase that doubt. Pharaoh begins by creating a narrative. Pharaoh begins telling a version of a story. Pharaoh begins implanting an idea into the hearts and minds of his people. He creates a narrative. Look in verse 9. Pharaoh begins whispering, trust me, this was not on a platform uh, in front of a podium in front of thousands of people. This was not a public address. This was whispered in private at first. Hey, behold, the people of Israel are too many and they are too mighty for us. You know what he was doing? He was huddling some folks up and he was saying, Hey, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, We got an Israelite problem. We got an Israelite, we got a Hebrew problem. They're starting to outnumber us, and if they start to outnumber us, they might overtake us. You know what this sounds an awful lot like? It sounds an awful lot like a guy named Hitler in the 1930s who didn't get up on a a podium at first, he just got in little circles. And he said, we've got a Jewish problem. They're beginning to outnumber us. And if they outnumber us, they may overtake us. And, oh, by the way, they're an inferior race. We need to do something about this. This is a lot like the Africaners in South Africa who several years ago began whispering, we have a black problem, what they actually called the black threat This is like Mao in China who began whispering, we have a Christian problem. It never begins uh, large, bold, and big. It always begins by creating a narrative and implanting it, telling a story shrewdly, politically. It always begins under the surface. Look at verse 10. Moses even uses this word shrewdly here. This is what Pharaoh says. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh has the ultimate solution. I, have, I know what we can do to fix this. And here's, here's the thing. Two birds, one stone. We'll solve the immigrant problem and we'll solve the labor problem as well. We'll make them build our cities for us, and in doing that, we'll crush their spirits and break their backs all at the same time. This is a man who is threatened. Not many examples, not only in the scriptures, but in history, of someone more insecure. He was worried about being overthrown, he was living in fear. This was all rooted in pride. And you know, when we face pride, pride usually has one of two ways it can lead us, one of two things it can do to us. Pride, it will either fuel our fear or it will drive our faith. Pharaoh had no faith. As far as he was concerned, he was the biggest God that he knew of. And you and I know he's not a God. So it drove fear. But let's give Pharaoh a little bit of credit. Pharaoh was not the first leader or ruler to deal with this. And he would not be the last to succumb to the poison of pride. In fact, throughout history, even today, leaders, whether they choose to be fueled by fear or driven by faith, whether they choose to be of great courage or they choose to be of corruption and cowardice, it doesn't matter. Leaders set the tone and the standard for the people who are following them. And people are always going to follow leaders. In verse 12 At the end of verse 12, it says the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Do you know that before the book of Exodus begins, the people of Egypt were not in dread over the Israelites? They lived next door to them. They had meals with them. They worked with them. They were their neighbors. Something began to drive this fear. It was a narrative being created by their leader. And every narrative, if it is continually fed and watered and believed, it will grow legs and it will take on life. I I want you to notice the progression of what happens here with Pharaoh. Okay, first, he puts the Israelites to work. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them and and afflicted heavy burdens on them. We're going to work them to death. We're going to work them to where they hate being here. And so at first, the Israelites are really walking through some, some suffering, but then he turns them into slaves. And as we read, he ruthlessly and violently rules over them. So we've moved very quickly from suffering to slavery. But when this doesn't seem to be solving the problem, Pharaoh says, hey, behind closed doors, here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna kill them. So we go from suffering to slavery to slaughter. Verse 15, the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, when you're there and you're helping them give birth, if it's a boy, you are to kill it. The more Pharaoh, um, the more his fear overtook him and drove him, the more ferocious his insanity and his rebellion and his hate became. So now he's beginning to attempt to manipulate. When we read that these are Hebrew midwives, I spent an exhaustive amount of time reading through this over the last few weeks, because I really wanted to know. There's argument made that these midwives, that they were Egyptian. But there's a whole lot more evidence that, no, that's not the case. These Hebrew midwives were just that. They were Hebrew women. And Pharaoh calls them in and tries to manipulate them out of fear that when they are helping their own People give birth, if, if it's a boy, you're to kill it. F- Pharaoh's trying to manipulate now from within the Israelites themselves. Pharaoh wasn't about to begin all of this by publicly saying, hey, here's what we're gonna do, everybody. We're gonna kill all the Israelites. Things don't work that way. You have to slowly walk people into the water before you release all of that out. Pharaoh didn't want this genocide to be public, at least not at first, wanted to keep it under wraps. So we'll just secretly kill all the baby boys. I want to make sure that everybody, it's Happy New Year. Maybe you've been celebrating and make sure everybody's awake and that you're with me this morning on the level of how sick, twisted, evil, and crazy this is. We're just going to eliminate them. We're going to kill them. Do away with it. This is a man who gave this order in the day and I guarantee you went and slept soundly at night. There are certain levels of crazy that you and I, we're probably comfortable with because we are that crazy. This is a whole nother level. This is evil incarnate. But once Pharaoh realizes that he's reached a tipping point with his people and the, the people have either just chosen to be ignorant or they've grown numb or indifferent to this insanity, he sends out an edict. Here's what we're gonna do. If you see a little Hebrew boy, you have the authority to pick that kid up and throw him in the river you have the authority to kill him. I want you to imagine what this must have been like. If, if you are a mom or a dad, if you are an aunt or an uncle, if you are a grandmother or a grandfather, I want you to imagine living in a country where you're not from there, and the government gives a, an edict to all of the nationals that, hey, if you see any of those Americans, if they've got a boy that's two years old or younger, you have full authority to take that kid and murder him right in front of their face. You understand that there are countries in the world right now where this kind of sick, twisted evil goes on? If you see a Christian, you can kill him. If you see a Muslim, you can kill him. Here's the criteria. You can kill him. There has to be something within us that when we read or we hear about this level of insanity, it causes conflict within us. Like what on earth? how the only way that i know how to reconcile if that's even the the appropriate word here something like pharaoh's insanity is to rest in faith in the knowledge that pharaoh's insanity is never ever greater than god's sovereignty i don't know how to explain the why the how but it's not. When you look in verse 9, you see that this fear of the Israelites, fear, it it fosters itself all the way into genocide. Let's just kill all the little boys. But then if you look in verse 12, I don't know if you noticed this or heard this or saw this when we read through this the first time, look at what it says in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they were slaughtered, the more they were persecuted, the Israelites multiplied, and the more that they spread abroad. The more fear that drove Pharaoh, the more the Israelites multiplied. Do you remember up here in in verse 5, how many people When Joseph finally brings his father and all his brothers and all their families to Egypt, how many people are there in total? There's 70. That's a seven and a zero. Years from now, and yes, they seem like many, many years from now, but in the grand scheme of things, not very many. Years from now, when the Israelites are going to march right out of Exodus, can't wait for us to get there, march right out of Egypt... Across the Red Sea, do you know how many people there are going to be? There are going to be 600,000 men. That doesn't even include the women and children. I don't want you to miss the irony here of what's going on. Pharaoh says, look at verse 10. We don't talk original language a whole lot, but sometimes it's worth it. In verse 10, Pharaoh says, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. This is a word in the Hebrew pronounced by us, penyerbe. I think I got a slide with this up here. Penyerbe. And I am not pronouncing it correctly. I had three years of Greek and I had like 30 minutes of Hebrew. Okay. But this is penyerbe. All right. Well, in verse 12, When it says that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, that word is kenyerbe. That's one letter off from the other word that Pharaoh uses. This is very deliberate. This is a pun. This is a play on words. This is actually Moses and ultimately God saying the joke is on Pharaoh. Because where he thinks he's going to eradicate and do away with my people, every time he tries, they're just going to multiply. This is God saying, I will have the last laugh. This is, remember, not um, a democracy, this is not like, um, you know, there's a king and a queen and a labor party. Um, there's no voting. This is a dictatorship in Egypt. This is, at this time, the single most powerful man on the face of the planet. And every action on his behalf to defy God only furthers God's purposes. So, the question is always looming in the midst of a situation or a story like this. The question is why? Why would God allow his people to endure this level of persecution and suffering? Philip Graham Ryken is a guy who wrote a a preaching commentary on Exodus. And I love this statement that he makes. Suffering inserts the question marks into the story of our lives. Suffering inserts question marks into the story of our lives. These moments when we just have to ask, why? Well, I, I want you to remember in the weeks to come, When weeks and weeks from now, we get to the point of the Israelites have moved out of Egypt. They're no longer slaves. They've been freed. I I want you to remember at those times the level of suffering that they've endured. Okay? That the Israelites were treated horrifically. They were beaten. They were branded like, oh, I see you have the mark of the the state on you. You belong to us. They were forced into labor camps. They were considered to be the property of Pharaoh and Egypt. The Israelites were slaves. Remember that several weeks from now. But why is this happening? Well, on one level, we have to acknowledge that Israel's suffering is a result of Egypt's sin. It is. You can't talk about pain and suffering in this world and and try and divorce it from the doctrine of sin. It doesn't work. Sin did not just bring sin into the world. It brought pain and suffering with it. And so one way or another, all of our battles, all the trials that we face, all the suffering that we walk through, it can be traced back to sin, either our own or the sin of others or sin itself. For some reason, God allowed and ordained this to happen. He could have stopped it. He could have prevented it from happening, but that wasn't his plan. Why? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first one I'm just going to call growth. If you look back again in verse 12 and you read and you understand that the more God's people suffered, the more they walked through, the more pain, the more they endured, the more that they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, the more that they grew. And you also have to understand that by enslaving the Israelites, Pharaoh actually helped foster and preserve their identity as a close-knit community. If you want to grow close to someone, the quickest way to do that is you walk through suffering together. You can really be pals with somebody that you celebrate with. But I'll tell you from years and years of coaching my son's baseball teams, It was not winning together that made those boys friends that they still are. It was the losing. (laughs) When you suffer with someone, it draws you together. Their suffering revealed their need for and their love for one another. I want you to hear what Charles Spurgeon said about this, and this is in your sermon notes there. He says, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, if, if the Israelites had just been left alone, They would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions, idolatries, and iniquities of Egypt. And these things clung to them in after years to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their heart must have turned aside very much toward the sins of Egypt." Yet, all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separated people. They could not be Egyptians, nor yet live permanently like Egyptians. For Jehovah had chosen them for himself, and he meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers on his deathbed. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he promised to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God brought us here for a reason, but he is going to take us out for even greater reasons. So don't get too comfortable. God allowed his people to endure this, to grow them. But God also allowed them to to endure this for the purpose of of salvation. In allowing them to to suffer, God clearly exposed to his people their need for salvation. Dan McCartney wrote a book called Why Does It Have to Hurt? (laughs) And the book is about why we walk through suffering and pain as God's people, why God allows it. Well, in the book, he he poses a couple of questions that are relevant here. He first asks, God saw the suffering of his people and he ultimately delivered them. But why did he allow it to happen in the first place? Could he not have rather simply prevented it in the first place? Well, he answers this question by raising another one. If God had done so, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough, as we're going to see in weeks to come, it was hard enough for them to leave even when they were suffering. Remember, this was the only home this generation knew. Joseph's dead. Possibly his son is dead. We're, we're on to grandkids here. These people that are there now, the Israelites, this is the only home that they've ever known. And, and we're not talking about living, you know, somewhere in the slums. This is Egypt, my friends. This is the pinnacle. All the riches that you can possibly think of right here where we live. It had to be a little cushy. Uh, For Spurgeon to say that they were willing to be Egyptianized, um, I think that that's a safe statement. We're good here. Everything's great. It was only going to be through the suffering and the slavery that they realized their need for deliverance and salvation. And so again, by enslaving and persecuting the Israelites, here's the irony. Pharaoh made them long for the very thing that he was working to prevent freedom. See, again, some of this stuff gets lost if you read through it too quickly because you get the idea, you listen to Pharaoh, I don't want these stupid Israelites in my country. So you think, okay, well, why not round them all up, walk them to the border and say, we'll see you later. Well, because that's not what he really, really wanted. He said, let's deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies, and they fight against us, and what? And escape from the land. Why does Pharaoh want to kill all the boys? It's not because he wants to do away with the Israelites. Pharaoh wants slaves. I'll keep the Hebrew women, and we'll just crossbreed them right on into our culture, and they'll just disappear right on into us. Spurgeon, again, he says, in order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place In the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Suffering, our own suffering, which is the result of sin. Whether it's our sin, someone else's sin, or just the existence and the burden of sin on this world and on our lives that suffering is the very thing that helps us long for salvation and to look for our Savior. It will either fuel fear in our life or it will drive faith. The Lord always has a purpose in the suffering of his people. Always. And that purpose is always redemptive. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of suffering and death, but it is also the ultimate manifestation of freedom and liberation. Jesus took it on for us so that we might be saved. I'd like to close this morning reading with you from 1 Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 21 and talking about suffering Peter says for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds that we have been healed the Israelites are in suffering and they are in slavery. And next week we are going to see as God begins to send the savior that they need. Well, friends, you and I were born into sin, which is the ultimate bond of suffering and slavery. And Jesus Christ has already broken those bonds for us. May we live that way. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, I don't know that we truly grasp that here we are. We are are in fellowship with you. Because of Jesus Christ, we have access to you as your children. And you are the same God that called Abraham out. You are the same God that walked with Joseph and used him for the salvation of your people. You're the same God that protected Moses, that spoke to him through fire and through cloud and, and here we are thousands of years later and you are calling us and loving us. But here we are thousands of years later and you have fulfilled that covenant through your son. Lord, we pray today that um, no matter what we are walking through, Lord, that our lives would be emptied of fear, Lord, that we would know that your love drives out fear, Lord, that you would drive us in faith to know that you are great and awesome God, that you are sovereign over all, that you are always working for our good, and Lord, may our lives be spent for your glory. I just want to encourage you to take a moment here at the beginning of this new year and if you're willing, ask the Lord, Lord, I don't know what you want to do or why you want to do it or how you want to accomplish it in and through my life. This year, this week, today, but Lord, I long to follow you, to be obedient to you, for my life to be spent for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, would you give me the vision to live my life today for you? In just a moment, as we respond to the Lord. If you want to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and pray, we invite you to come. If you need someone to pray with you or to share with you what it means to follow Christ, some of our pastors, elders, and leaders will be in the back of the room. Lord, this time is yours. We love you. We worship and praise you and exalt you. Be glorified in this place.